0: The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And if you're familiar with 2 Corinthians, you know that chapters 8 and 9 speak specifically about giving. And while talking about money may not be the most comfortable thing uh, for some preachers, I'm not going to apologize for or shrink back from what the scriptures say. Um, this, I figure this is the honeymoon phase of my time here at Harmony, that uh, while you just had a past, you just got a pastor, that now is the time to take full advantage of preaching on topics like hell last week and money this week. So we're going to dive right in. Let me just open with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be here to worship in your house this morning. God, I pray and ask that you'd be with us that You would encourage us and bless us as we look at Your Word, that You would just help us to grow by it. God, that we would seek to apply it to our lives and to leave here changed as we interact with it. God, I pray for the churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world, as always, God, that they would worship You in spirit and in truth. God, that Your gospel would transform lives both in this community and around the world as people interact with You. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I don't know if you're in the majority or not, but the majority of Americans are very concerned about the economy. And while somewhere between 75 and 80% of Americans consider themselves Christian, they don't seem to be concerned with what the Bible actually teaches about money. Listen to these statistics done from a uh, a survey done by the American Bible Society. It says, despite the Bible's teaching about money and possessions, 50% of Americans would take advice from Donald Trump, but only 32% say they'd look to the Bible. So 50% say we'd look to Donald Trump, but 32% say they would look to the Bible. 86% of Americans do not follow what the Bible says about money management. And one in four Americans, 24% who do not follow what the Bible says about money, think they would have more money if they did. So A quarter of all those people say, we don't follow what the Bible says, but we knew that if we did, we probably would have more money. And even with evangelicals, there seems to be a tendency, because that's Christian, and we use the term Christian broadly in such surveys, but even among evangelicals, there seems to be a tendency to look to the Bible for answers regarding parenting and marriage and communication and a host of other issues. Yet we know little or nothing about what the Bible says about money. Yet there's over 2,000 verses dealing with money and possessions in the Bible. And since our aim as a church is, as Acts 20, verse 27 says, to declare the whole counsel of God, my aim this morning is to declare the counsel of God to you regarding financial giving. So finally, without further delay, let's look at our text this morning. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-15. through 2 Corinthians 9, if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word. Verses 6-15 through Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing through the many thanksgivings to God. Because, the proof, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So the first point in our sermon outline is this. God gives us principles for giving. God gives us principles for giving. As I mentioned earlier, there are over 2,000 references to money and possessions in the Scripture. So to to say that the Bible gives us guidance on how to handle our finances is an understatement. It's a huge understatement. The Bible is full of such principles. But let's be a little bit more specific and look at the principles given in this particular text. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The first principle that we see here is that we are to give generously. Whereas the NASB puts it, bountifully. So generously. We are to give generously. And the Scripture uses farming as an example. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what this example means. More seeds equals more plants. So when you plant a garden, more seeds equals more plants. More sowing equals more reaping. This idea of generous giving is taught throughout Scripture. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, He who is generous will be blessed, for he who gives some of his food to the poor. Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Galatians 6.9 let, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Luke 6.38 Jesus Himself said, Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Part of giving generously is giving proportionally. Consider the widow in Mark 12. We all know the story of the the widow who comes in and she puts two small copper coins in the offering. And Jesus says, she gave more than all of the rest of you. See, it would be foolish of us to argue that her gift wasn't generous because it wasn't large. Jesus said just the opposite. That she gave more than all of you. So our giving should be proportional to what we have. We have. Under the Old Testament system, God's people were expected to tithe. And The Hebrew word for tithe simply means a tenth. That's all that it means. It's a, it's a tenth. However, this was just one portion of what the, the Old Testament people were expected to give God. Essentially, a tenth of their income went to the Levites, the priests of the Old Testament, while an additional 10% was given to fund festivals and feasts and holidays and yet another 3.3% was given to care for the poor. So we have at least 23% that was given. So we clearly see this principle of giving proportionally spelled out in the Old Testament. And when we see that, the question often gets asked, are are Christians today, are Christians required to give 10% of their income? Are Christians required to tithe? Well, the New Testament doesn't say so specifically. But lest you think you're off the hook, let's continue to work through this and see what it really means to give generously. We've already seen that giving generously, part of it is giving proportionally. Uh, what else should we consider when seeking to give generously? One thing we should consider, I believe, is our own selfishness. Paul said in verse nine, in chapter 9, verse 5, that he didn't want to see their gift affected by covetousness. Just before this section that we read in verse 6, he says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised gift so that the time, so that at the same I'm sorry, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift, not affected by covetousness. He said, I don't want to see your gift affected by covetousness, by selfishness. He wanted to make sure that greed was not affecting the way they were giving. And more often than not, what I consider being generous falls so very far short of what God considers generous. Is it fair to say that God's been generous to us? I would think so. Is it also fair to say that we are to be like God in all things, as Scripture teaches us? Well, then let's consider God's generosity. If we are to be like God in all things, and God has been generous to us, let us consider God's generosity. Ephesians 5, 2 reminds us to walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us. He gave Himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, Ephesians 5 says. Or consider 2 Corinthians 5.21 which reminds us that He made Him who know no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So will any such sacrifice of ours not be small in comparison? The second part of giving generously is giving sacrificially. And sacrifice is simply part of the Christian life. We need to wrap our arms around that and embrace that, and that's hard as Americans living in this time period where we're blessed beyond measure. The poorest among us have more than some of the the wealthiest in all of human history. We are rich beyond measure. And we're called to sacrifice. We're not called to live for ourselves. We're called to live for God. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This type of generosity, generosity that is sacrificial, is clearly demonstrated in Scripture. And it's demonstrated by the church in Macedonia in the greater context of our passage. Look at 2 Corinthians verse 8. Just a few pages before. Starting at verse 1, when we understand the context of this passage, it sheds a whole new light on what Paul is saying here, 8, 1 through 5 Now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. See, when we look at this text, we understand that the church in Jerusalem was under attack and they were being persecuted and the Jews were... were Poor, and they were needy because of their newfound faith in Jesus. That suddenly those who embraced Jesus, they, they no longer could participate in their family business. They no longer had the support of their loved ones because they had abandoned the Jewish faith. And when Paul comes and says to the apostles, he says, I want to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. The apostles say, yes, yes, do it, Paul. But there's one thing you need to remember to do. Remember the poor. And Paul says, that's the very thing I was eager to do. And then we get to 2 Corinthians and he says the church in Macedonia, they gave abundantly. And now I'm reminding you that you promised that you would give too. They didn't just give, they gave until it hurt. See, the Macedonians gave generously despite the fact that they were experiencing great affliction, it says, and deep poverty. And Paul goes on and says they gave first of themselves to the Lord. That's sacrifice. That's what God calls us to do. And that type of giving doesn't just require a, a lifestyle change. It requires a dramatic shift in the way we look at our possessions and our money. It did for the Macedonians. See, true generosity comes from a heart that is deeply grateful for the blessings that God has bestowed on us. And in, in turn, it wants, we want to sacrifice for the sake of others. So the first principle is that we are to give generously. And that includes giving proportionally and sacrificially. The second principle from the text is that we are to give purposefully. Paul says, each one must do as he has purposed in his heart. The Greek word that is translated purposed means to decide beforehand. See, giving is something that should follow prayer and take planning and forethought. In other words, it's an act of worship. Consider the example of communion. We've talked about communion a little bit in Sunday school and how it's a celebration. And when we take communion, we should be celebrating because we remember Christ's promise to come back. We remember what He did for us. But it's also something that we do with reverence. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago, how we need to be reverent. We need to be serious about taking communion. And that's why we pray, that's why we seek the Lord, that's why we know communion's coming up, and when it's coming up, we prepare ourselves. Hopefully, you prepare yourself the week before, knowing that you're going to partake of that table. In fact, Paul gives very clear warnings in 1 Corinthians against partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. You see, the church in Corinth was making a mockery out of communion. There were divisions among the believers there. There were squabbling and fighting. Some were showing up early and eating and drinking to the point of drunkenness while others were left hungry. And it's in that context that Paul said, don't partake of the Lord's table lightly. God was concerned about their hearts. Their hearts were focused on themselves and what they would get from that fellowship meal and not on the Lord so Paul tells them that their selfish selfish actions he says are bringing discipline from the Lord at the communion table. More specifically he says, "For this reason, making a mockery out of worship, a number of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Do we not also think that making a mockery out of giving might bring about discipline from the Lord?" See, we shouldn't show up here on Sunday morning being ready to receive communion because we've been thinking and praying about it and planning for it, getting our hearts right, without also thinking about, praying about, and planning for the offering. It's very easy to do with communion to think, I need to get my heart right. But how many of us thought this week, I need to get my heart right before that plate comes to this pew. And yet we do. It's an act of worship. As far as I'm concerned, it's one of the most beautiful parts of worship where we all get to participate together equally. We're laying our hearts before God. We need to prepare, pray, think, and plan each week. And to further substantiate this, the second part of the verse says, in his heart. When we look at uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 again, it says, each one must do as he has purposed in his heart. The term heart is often misunderstood by the English reader. Uh, We sometimes have a tendency of thinking of the heart as the place of emotions. I love that person with all my heart. Whereas it's more closely related to the the gut or the bowels is the place of emotion in the Scriptures. The way the Bible uses the term heart Is really more consistent with our entire person. When we give, we are to give of our entire being. We're to give as we have purposed in our innermost being, is what Paul is saying. You must purpose in your heart, in your innermost being, what you are to give. You see, we're not called to show up Sunday morning and see what's left in our wallets, we're called to plan and prepare ourselves for this act of obedience. 1 Corinthians 16:2 says, On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections may be made when I come. And we also see that in the broader context of our passage, we see the same idea of preparing and plan- um, planning. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 3-5, it says this, it says, But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case. So that as I was saying, he says, the brethren are coming. I don't want my bragging about how prepared you are to be empty. For I know you promise to be prepared. He says, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence." So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift not affected by covetousness. Can you see the planning and preparation that goes into this? Paul says, I want you to plan and think this out and to have your hearts right in this. So the second principle is that we are to give purposefully. We are to make sure that when we give, we have thought it out, planned it out, prayed about it, and it's given with purpose. Then the third principle for giving from this text is that we are to give cheerfully. Paul says that we are not to give grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, just like communion, it should be a celebration. Just like when we celebrate communion with gladness of heart, remembering what Christ has done for us, So we should also celebrate what Christ has done for us when we pass the offering basket. See, we call it a worship service because we're here to worship. We worship in prayer. We worship in song. We worship in communion. We worship in the offering. We worship in the preaching of His Word. See, there should be laughing and joy and smiles as the the offering plate is passed. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And we can't fool God, right? That's the trick. We can't fool God. We can't just laugh and smile and pretend to be happy and think, well, there goes another 20 bucks, <laughs> right? <laughs> so much for that four berry pie at Moody's. And tell where my mind is this morning. We can't fool God. We can't just look happy when the plate comes by. He's God, remember? You can't fool Him. so... You see, it's not really your money that God is after. He doesn't need your money. This church does not need your money. God wants your heart. He wants you to be devoted to Him, fully devoted to Him. And you know what? That's what I and the other leaders of this church want as well. We don't just want you to put money in the plate. We want you to commit your hearts to the Lord. As Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. And that's my desire. That you delight to do God's will. That it's a huge blessing when you get to do God's will. And I I thought of this, I thought of asking Bill if we could do the offering at the end of the message. I maybe even go a step further and say that if you decided, if you if you gave grudgingly or under compulsion, I'll probably get in trouble for this, but I'd encourage you to come up after the service and take it back. And I'm serious. Because God says He delights in a cheerful giver. Don't give grudgingly or under compulsion. If you gave because the person sitting next to you was giving and you felt like, well, probably should put something in, so take it back, please. The church will survive. The church doesn't need your money. God does not need your money. What God is after is something far bigger than your wallet. He's after your heart. So the last principle we see for giving is giving cheerfully. God says, give cheerfully because your heart belongs to me. Before we move on to the next point in the sermon, let's just recap those principles for giving. We are to give generously, which includes proportionally and sacrificially. And we are to give purposefully. And then we are to give cheerfully. And the second point in your sermon outline is that God promises to bless us when we give according to His principles. He promises to bless us when we give according to His principles. Look at verses 8-11 through 11 in our text. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 8-11 through 11 says this, "...and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He who scattered abroad, He gave, birth, he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever." Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be increased in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Now this idea has been misconstrued to the point where I think some people don't even want to touch it. Some pastors and preachers don't even want to go here However, not to communicate what this text says would be wrong. Scripture does say that there are rewards for following Him. This particular passage does say that God promises to bless us when we follow His principles for giving. God says that as we give, He will sufficiently provide for us so that we will have an abundance to do more good. Verse 11 says, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. When we give, the result is that God blesses us so that we can further sacrifice. He says, give sacrificially, and when you do, I'm going to bless you, and then you can sacrifice even more. Listen, we cannot give so that we can get. Instead, the passage says that God will bless us with the opportunity to commit more good deeds to Him. Not the opportunity to get more money and spend it on our pleasures and increase on ourselves. So I'm not saying, don't hear me say, when I say God's going to bless you for giving, don't hear me saying that if you put $100 in the offering plate, God's going to bring 1000 back to you next week. Right? Please, please do not hear me say that. What I'm saying is that God is going to bless you for your obedience. That blessing may come in the, in the form of material possessions. After all, God entrusts us as stewards. And when we're good stewards, He entrusts us to more. However, the primary blessing is a harvest of righteousness. Look at verse 10 again. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God says that when we give, not only are we being good stewards, not only are we storing up rewards in heaven, we are being transformed into Christ-likeness. We are becoming more righteous. So just think, every time that old plate comes around, and it's going to come around twice next week, right? You get a chance to be more like Jesus. And that's what should be on our hearts. Here's a chance to become more righteous, to be transformed into into the image of Christ. We love to hear of becoming more like Jesus, right? But when the rubber hits the road, when we're given an opportunity to give, that's when it gets difficult. After all, we're sinners and we're selfish. That's why many prosperity preachers are so successful. They play on our selfishness. People love to hear that God is going to bless them with riches. Just send in your seed money. Send me $50 and God will increase your harvest. And you know what? We could do the same thing. I could stand up here and we can quote Malachi 3, read it out of context, and tell you that if you put some money in the offering plate, that God is going to multiply your pleasures. But that's not what God is really saying. And that is not what Malachi 3 says either. If you look at Malachi 3, you can turn there if you will. Malachi 3, verses 7 through 15, says this. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? God? yet you are robbing Me. So God says, Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing Me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing Me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in My house, and test Me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. God isn't saying that He will multiply their treasures if they follow this simple formula. He isn't saying, you need to tithe, and if you tithe... Everything is going to be great. And you're going to have more wealth and prosperity. But that's what some would argue. Some would take that out of context and say, bring in the tithe. Bring in the tithe and your barns will overflow with even more wealth. He's saying they need to return to the Lord. The whole nation has departed from the Lord. And the financial aspect of their return was just one aspect. See, they, like us, they didn't have a giving problem. They had a heart problem. God and Malachi wanted the people of Israel to trust Him. He was telling them that they were being disciplined because their heart was wicked. The problem was that they were more focused on themselves than they were the Lord. And to use this passage as a formula for riches puts the focus back on us. And last I checked, God wants us to think less of ourselves and more of Him. God says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for more money. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for possessions. And finally, if money and riches were the result of obedience to God, what does that say about Jesus? That if these prosperity preachers say that, you know, money and riches are the natural result of being obedient to God, what do they do with the person and work of Jesus Christ? You know, the Jesus who was born in a manger, who lived a life devoid of really any earthly possessions. The Jesus who had no home to lay His head on. So the second point is God promises to bless us when we give according to His principles. And that blessing is a harvest of righteousness. We're transformed to be more like Jesus. And what more of a blessing could we receive than being transformed into the image of Christ? We become more holy. The third point in your sermon outline is God is glorified when we give according to his principles. So, God is glorified when we give according to his principles. See, not only does God give us principles for giving, and not only does he bless us when we follow these principles. But he is also glorified in our doing so. Look at verses 12 through 15, chapter 9, with me. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for the liberality of your contribution to them. And to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The end result is as we give, many thanksgivings are poured out to God. That's what it says many thanksgivings are poured out to God as we give. In addition, verse 13 says that others will glorify God for your obedience. Catch this. It says, your obedience, which is a confession of the gospel of Christ. It says that as you give, you are confessing the gospel. So as we get baptized, we are confessing the gospel. As we take communion, we are confessing the gospel. And as we give on Sunday morning, it is a confession of the gospel. I don't mean to beat the same drum over and over and over again, but that's what Sunday morning is about. It's about a confession of the Gospel. I need the Gospel, and we need to continue to confess the Gospel to to ourselves and to each other constantly. In other words, when we give, we are preaching, we are proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as He laid down His life for our sins, so we live for His glory. And we recognize that as a people, everything we have belongs to Him. All we are and everything we have belongs to God. For we've been bought with a price. See, our participation in giving demonstrates the reality of our confession. When we give, we demonstrate the reality of what we say. It's easy to say, Jesus is my Lord, and then spend our money on ourselves. It's easy to say Jesus is my Lord and then pursue other gods, other idols in our lives. But when we say Jesus is my Lord and then we give, we demonstrate that reality. It demonstrates the reality of our confession and the vitality of our spiritual lives really. You know, one of the things that I don't know in this church is I don't know what any of you give. Um, and I don't want to know, honestly. On one hand, I do. On one hand, I do. Because I'm concerned. I am concerned. And I should be concerned. I know some churches where the pastors do know what individuals give. Because they want to know. If this person is a deacon, they should understand godly principles for giving. I'm not talking about tithing. We'll come back to that. But godly principles for giving. Do they understand this? Are they mature enough to serve in this role? And that's a good benchmark a good way to say do they understand what scripture teaches however it also affects the way you look at people and I don't know if I'm mature enough to say that guy's got money and I'm not going to let that affect the ministry of this church and you know what I don't care if I get paid because it's not about my pay I, I don't care I would do this for free and will gladly continue to do this for free it's not about the money But I do know that the money furthers the ministry. And money is a good, useful resource for the church. And I would love to see the offering increase so that we can reach this community and use those resources more. However, I know that what God is after and what we are after is your heart. Because we will plow more ground if we're not dragging people behind the plow. It's not about giving under compulsion. grudgingly. It's giving because you have a heart that loves the Lord. That's the way this community will be reached. That's the way this church will be built. By people who have a vital uh, growing spiritual life and are demonstrating the reality of their confession through giving. See, every element of our worship service should point us to Jesus. And so should the act of giving. So now, Back to the question on tithing. Do we have to tithe as Christians living in the New Testament? New Testament times. Well, we're called to give generously. We'll go back to the principles. We're called to give generously. And that means proportionally and that means sacrificially. So we see proportionally and we see sacrificially. Is 10% sacrificial? I can't answer that. I cannot answer that for you. That's something you need to work through with God. And God, we also see that while we're called to give generously, God has promised to bless us when we do give. And then we also see that God is glorified when we give. So while the Old Testament required people to give 10%, and the New Testament doesn't give us an exact number, we must remember that Jesus did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. See, Jesus always took the law a step further. Jesus said, if you've hated your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Jesus said, if you so much as look at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. He says you should have done all these things without neglecting the tithing practice. Jesus didn't tell the Pharisees not to give 10%. He said they should have truly been seeking the Lord in everything without neglecting the practice of tithing. And in the same way, we should seek the Lord in everything without neglecting the practice of tithing. For the believer, 10% is a good baseline, I would argue, but it's not the goal. It's not the goal. You see, it's the starting line, not the finish line. For God has called us to give generously, purposefully, and cheerfully. And the only way we'll do that is if we have a heart that loves the Lord and seeks the Lord in every aspect of our lives. So in closing, remember this. God gives us principles for giving. And God promises to bless us when we give according to those principles. According to the principles of giving generously, purposefully, and cheerfully. I I would encourage you this week to sit down and say, what is generous? What does generous look like for me? What does purposeful look like? Am I really giving with the intent of building Christ king, growing Christ's kingdom? Am I giving with the intent of giving back that which was given to me anyway? It doesn't belong to us. And are we giving cheerfully? Are we saying, praise You God for this opportunity to give back that which You've given to me? And then God is glorified when we live according to these principles. So how do we apply this to our lives here at Harmony? We need to turn our hearts to the Lord. And I would encourage you, spend time in prayer this week, praying about giving, praying about every part of the worship service. When I sing, do I sing with a heart that's cheerful, with a heart that's glad, with a heart that reflects on the Gospel? When I take communion, am I remembering the Gospel? When I give, am I remembering the Gospel? Why am I giving? And I would encourage you, if you're giving grudgingly or under compulsion, don't give. Don't give. We'll survive. We're fine. Instead, focus on getting your heart right with the Lord. And and I'm not even going to say you need to give specifically to harmony. Scripture doesn't really clearly say that. I think you should give to the ministry that you are part of and that you benefit from and that you are in community with. However, there's no formula that says 10% must go to harmony and 5% must go to the Bible college you went to Bible college to who, who poured into you or whatever, there's no specific formula. The point is, you have a heart that loves the Lord, and let's seek to get there as a people, and to live sacrificially for God. And then for those of us, that's for those of us who are believers, and if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, all this talk about money, I realize it's tough, because you think, what is all of this about money? You see, giving is just a picture. It's a picture of us recognizing what God has done for us. And when I say the Gospel, it's all about Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. It's about God who came in human flesh and recognized that we stand guilty. Guilty for disobeying God. And that we needed someone to rescue us. That the wages of sin is death. And that we stand condemned, facing an eternity in hell without a Savior. And Jesus said, Jesus walked up in that courtroom to the judge, God, and said, I'll take the punishment. I'll pay the fine so that they can live forever. And I would encourage you to receive that gift, that gift of Christ's death on the cross, that gift of salvation through Jesus. Recognizing that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. And then begin to commit your life, every part of your life to Him, for He is worth committing to. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your grace. God, help us to commit fully to You each day to live for Your glory. God, I pray that we would not hold anything back. Not our wallets, not our spare time, not our speech, not our relationships. Nothing. God, that every part of us would be committed, wholeheartedly committed to living for You and for Your glory and for the building up of the saints for the furtherance of Your kingdom We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Pauley, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.